Hey, Seth, this is Michael in Rogers, Arkansas. I'd love for you to talk about the tension between two ideas that I hear you talk about a lot. One is using flags with intent, you know, uh, putting the right design into an event or actually making your website look pretty, but also not using these same visual cues to, to judge someone, a book by their cover from their ethnicity or background. Or, um, so how can you turn on seeing the flags in the right way in some contexts, but turn maybe some of the flags that you see in others off? What brain space do you use to do that? Thanks. Hey, it's Seth. And this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second with the first podcast ever about kerning. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Akimbo's small business workshop is back. It's back because it works. Find out what you're missing. Find out how to work it better. Find out the path forward. Here's my friend Ramon Ray to tell you about it. In this workshop, you'll learn what you need to start and grow your business. Students have told us that the workshop helped them think and rethink their assumptions about small business success. Students said they no longer felt alone in growing their business. Listen, we know owning a business has a lot of challenges. And in the Small Business Workshop, we give you the framework to help you make the choices you need to make to overcome these challenges. I can't wait to see you in the Akimbo Small Business Workshop. Find out more at akimbo.com slash go. Hope to see you there. Why on earth would you do an audio podcast about kerning the little spaces in between the letters? Well, we're going to try that because it's a great answer to this generous question. Kerning is the art in setting type of nestling letters next to one another. So if we think about a K and an E, the E should be closer to the K than it would be to, say, an N. That's because the K has those little sticks that hang out, and the E can nestle quite nicely underneath the sticks. If you visit the show notes at akimbo.link, you will see the greatest XKCD cartoon ever, which is all about kerning. And once you see it, you will never be able to unsee it. And that's the thing. That's where we begin. Because people who don't understand or care about kerning don't see it. They don't see type, or if you want to call them, fonts. They simply see the words on the page, and they go about their business. On the other hand, there are people like me who can't help but notice. Why exactly did you set this in Comic Sans? Why are you using a sans serif font to write this book? And why didn't you take care to kern this headline properly? And why are you using a display font when you shouldn't be? I notice these things. Lots of people do. Not most people, but lots do. So what to do with this information? I'm not sharing the information with kerning with you because I care about you and your typesetting. I'm doing it because it's a metaphor for a two-part process. Part one, noticing. Part two, doing something about it. So let's begin with noticing. Do you notice the way it appears on the page? Do you notice that a certain kind of person, whether they are tall or blonde-headed or bald or walk with a little bit of a limp, is attractive to you? Do you notice 
that certain smells or sounds or environments make you on edge or appeal to you. If you don't notice these things, then what's happening is a set of signals is manipulating you or changing you without you realizing it. So the first part of the job is to start getting better at seeing semiotics, start getting better at seeing flags and signs and understanding why you are drawn or repulsed by something in the environment. The late, great Jay Levinson, the author of the Guerrilla Marketing books and my friend, used to tell the following story. He was one of the people who worked, much to his chagrin, on the early Marlboro Man rebranding. And he also worked with the folks at Leo Burnett and many of the great advertisers in the 60s and 70s. Well, one day Jay was hustling to a meeting and he got in the cab and the cabbie's driving him and they get to talking and the cabbie says, so what do you do? And Jay says, well, I make ads. And so the cab says, oh, you mean you're in the ad game? And Jay says, well, yeah, I guess you could say that. And the cab driver says, well, that stuff never works on me. And just for kicks, Jay said, yeah, well, what kind of toothpaste do you use? And the cab driver turned to him using a slogan that's 60 years old and said, well, I use Gleam, but that's just because I don't have time to brush after every meal. Wow, Jenny can come to the prom. Brother? I got to rent a tuxedo. Well, Jimmy. Oh, now he should have brushed his teeth. You're right. Brushing after meals is important to help fight decay. And if you can't brush after every meal, brush often and use Gleam. Between brushings, a harmful deposit of food and bacteria forms on teeth. Proper brushing with Gleam removes most of this harmful deposit. So brush often, even if you can't brush after every meal, and use Gleam. And the reason that joke works is because, obviously, the ad game did work on this cab driver that all toothpastes being basically the same, he had chosen one based on their slogan, their unique selling proposition, their positioning in a crowded marketplace. But he didn't want to acknowledge that. So when you go out to buy a new car or think about who you're going to vote for or decide what treatment you're going to use for an illness, the question you need to ask yourself is, why do I think this? If everyone doesn't think it, if it's not something that would relentlessly win every time in a double-blind study. What was it that made me decide that this was the one for me? That most people use the laundry detergent that their parents did, or if they don't, they shifted for a really good reason. That most people are drawn to something about the visual appearance of others. Some people are allergic to close talkers. Other people don't care. Can you notice that? Working to notice it starts us down the path to being able to do something about it. So if you're on your 15th heartbreak and you notice that you are drawn to a certain kind of person with a certain set of bad habits, then do you do something about it? Do you make the conscious decision to run away from anybody? Who looks like this? It's easy to believe that we're not racist. It's easy to believe that we mean well. But if we look honestly at what decisions we make after we get a signal from the world, 
we might discover that we are judging people, judging them by their race or their gender or their height, judging them by their apparent income, judging them by who introduced us to them, judging us by the accent they have or don't have. We need to, A, notice these things, and then we need to come up with a good reason to stop acting on them or to begin acting on them. If it turns out that you are eliminating a huge portion of the population who could work for you productively, who could engage with you emotionally, if you're rejecting them simply because of a nonverbal clue that you're getting, you are hurting yourself and them. But first, we have to notice it, and then we can choose to act on it. And the third part of this very short rant is this. Everyone's doing the same thing to us. Everyone's doing the same thing to the work that we create, to the appearance that we present all the time. Now, you could just say, that's okay. Or you could choose to imagine that you are being judged for things that you don't want to be judged for. Notice it. And then you could choose to do something about it. So I will confess right now, if you are in a Zoom call with me and you are using a virtual background or worse, an animated virtual background, I am going to judge you. I'm going to judge you fairly harshly. I will probably not engage with you at the level you would like me to engage. Now, you could say tough luck for Seth or you could decide that if it's important you not be judged on your Zoom background, then get a better Zoom background or get rid of it altogether. That if you go to a funeral in a clown suit, people are going to judge you. Now, you might be okay with that, but if it's not going to get you the outputs and the results that you seek, don't wear a clown suit to a funeral. Kern your type. Get smart about how you are being judged. Where this really becomes tragic is when we talk about people who are being judged who can't easily change how they are being judged. We have plenty of evidence that when a woman changes her email name so that it is not obvious what her gender is, the response rate, the yes rate, the meetings taken rate in many industries goes up. That's not fair. That's just wrong. We have enormous amounts of evidence that show that people of color or that people who don't match the ethnic background of those that they seek to connect with are prejudged and often criticized or rejected simply because of a shortcut, a bad shortcut, that the person who's filtering is taking. And if we're going to build a productive, dignified, fair society, we've got to see it. And after we see it, we have to decide to act on it. And it's easy to get into a real complicated conversation about affirmative action. But the question that companies and organizations need to ask themselves is this. Are we already judging people before we do something to try to fix our problem? The answer is, of course. Where did we decide to recruit when we went off campus to recruit? How did we decide to post our help wanted ads? What barriers are we putting in the way of some people and not others? And aggressively working to undo that 
creates an opportunity for that organization to cast a wider net. That wider net will get them different points of view, more talent. It ends up being in their interest. And yes, if you are one of the people being judged, it is a very difficult choice to make. It is a difficult choice to decide that you will seek to get by by concealing your, quote, true nature versus standing up to make a point, something you're going to have to do again and again. So faced with all this unfairness, we get back to this beginning concept. First you notice, and then you decide to take some action. And I can't tell you what to do. Most of the time, my entire life, I've gotten the benefit of the doubt. But when I started producing work that I had to pitch to people, I discovered I almost never got the benefit of the doubt. It didn't look right. didn't sound right. didn't come from a voice that they were ready to hear it from. And so I made the intentional choice to change what my work looked like and felt like so that it would be judged in a way that got me and the person I was seeking to serve the results that they sought. That's not fair. That's not easy. But it's clearly true. These are all variations on privilege. The privilege of being able to know what the cues and the clues are. The privilege of being able to match them. Maybe because of the way you were raised. Maybe because you had the ability to learn them. The privilege of having the benefit of the doubt before you even open your mouth. That centuries of white-enforced supremacy have created signals that have nothing to do with the work itself, but that are baked in to how our culture works. That enforced male supremacy has sent signals built deep into the culture that make it really difficult for someone who isn't a European white male to get the benefit of the doubt. And so when we ask people to send different signals, signals that some people say feel authentic to them, and others say, not only isn't this authentic to how I feel, it's something I'm not even capable of doing because of how I appear when I show up. We are doing something shameful. We are reinforcing a tragedy. So what we've got to figure out how to do as a signal reading and signal sending species is we've got to figure out which ones really matter and which ones are simply there to reinforce an injustice that arrived long before we got here. Because repeating the injustice doesn't help us. We have to begin to make a commitment to learn to see about how we make our decisions, about what matters in our culture and in the things we engage with and what doesn't, so that we can get back on track to creating possibility and connection, to make things better by making better things. But that doesn't always mean it's going to rhyme with what happened yesterday. In fact, it quite likely won't. So that's a lot for one rant, but I appreciate the question. I hope that resonates with people. Thanks. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. In a second, we'll be back with a question from a previous episode, but as you'll see, ironically, here's a message from our sponsor. When is the time to level up? When is the time to learn a new way to see the world, to connect with others, to lead, to engage in possibility? Akimbo is a B Corp, an independently owned and operated institution designed around learning, not education, not certificates, not grades, but learning together. It works if you do the work. 
I hope you'll check out what the people at Akimbo are up to. Visit akimbo.com go to find out about their new upcoming workshops and how it all works. Thanks. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about anything we've been talking about, please visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. And yes, this question is about the efficacy of advertising. Hi, Seth. It's Matt from Chicago. I wanted to get you riffing on an idea I just can't let go of. It comes from Steve Levitt, and the idea is that advertising does not work. It's a courageous question, and I love it because of that. However, we live in a world where people are paying for clicks. I know folks in that space love to hide behind their website analytics to justify their jobs. But what am I left to believe? Thanks for all the work you do. I will continue to cause a ruckus wherever I go. Thanks for this, Matt. Uh, My friend Steve Dubner did, in fact, do two episodes about whether advertising works. The first part is whether TV advertising works, and the second one is whether digital advertising works. And there are significant problems with their analysis. There's nothing wrong with the studies that they cited, but the questions are deeply flawed. So my history with advertising. Back in 1983, when I was only 23 years old and worked at Spinnaker Software, they handed me millions of dollars to spend on advertising. And I have to say, I don't think any of it worked particularly well. Because even though Spinnaker was the 200th biggest advertiser in America back in 1983, we were so small that we didn't have a huge presence in the places where we were running the ads. Fast forward to the 90s and the 2000s at the dawn of the internet. I was working at Prodigy where there were ads everywhere. And then after Yahoo bought my company, I discovered how advertisers were behaving when they bought ads on the homepage of Yahoo and in other places. So I've seen it from lots of different angles, but we need to ask the questions properly. So here we go. A successful consumer packaged goods company, a successful multinational firm, a successful industrial entity is a little bit like a boat that's right on the crest of a wave. And if the captain of that boat does a good job, it can hang on the crest of that wave for a long time. And magic is up there if you are looking for the magic of successful large-scale capitalism. It is the magic of all of these forces pushing you in exactly the right direction at high speed. People who surf get hooked on it. But if you make just a few miscalculations, you're not at the crest anymore. You fall backwards off the wave, like blackjack chewing gum, which no one listening to this has bought in a really long time. And so, there are a lot of things that could lead you to be on the crest of that wave. But once you're on the crest of that wave and you are spinning off so much money, spending a whole bunch of that on advertising is a ridiculously cheap insurance policy. 
because the next person who's going to come along and take the crest of the wave away from you will not be able to get to that crest by buying advertising behind your back because you can outspend them. And so, yes, in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, you could build a brand from scratch. Trouble with Popomatic. You get the idea. He sunk my battleship by buying a bunch of ads to get yourself to the crest of that wave. And then, after that period of time, a smart, cost-cutting CMO could do some interesting studies, some research, stop running ads in Pittsburgh, as Dubner talks about, and discover that the ads are wasted. So don't run them. Until one day, you're blackjack chewing gum. Until one day, you have fallen behind. These companies, they're not profit maximizers. They are filled with people who are career maximizers. And one of the things that keeps their career going is they do what their boss used to do. And another thing that keeps their career going is that the stock price stays where everybody wants it to stay or moves up. And in both of those situations, you have an incentive not to maximize quarterly profit, but to continue dominating shelf space, to continue owning market share. That what drives big advertising, that people are spending hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars a year, is not that they are adroitly measuring using Lagrange transforms and other things that are talked about by researchers, but that they are on the crest of a wave and they want to keep it going. Back when I was at Yahoo, I was stunned at how easy it was for Yahoo to sell ads. I had made hundreds, perhaps thousands of sales calls when I was at Yo-Yo Dime, when we were trying to persuade brands to buy email advertising. We had a 70% open rate, a 35% response rate. We were pioneering an industry that has now become worth billions and billions of dollars. But we had a really hard time getting people to go first. But Yahoo, Yahoo had caught the crest of the wave. And so the phone rang. They didn't have a sales force. They had order takers. Advertisers would show up and insist that they wanted to buy the homepage of Yahoo, not because it worked, because they didn't know if it worked. They weren't even wanting it to work because it would have threatened the TV they understood. They were doing it because their boss needed them to, because the shareholders needed them to, because they were on the crest of a wave and they wanted to stay there. This is separate from the discussion of short-term thinking direct marketers who are finding niches on the internet and exploiting them sometimes at our expense to keep going or to grow. Corinthian was a chain of private, for-profit colleges, I'm using the word colleges loosely, that was basically a scam to take federal loan money and pay for a giant behemoth of an institution that was ripping off people who were struggling on the edges of our economy. And in one year, they spent more than $120 million on internet advertising, and it allowed them to get to $600 million in revenue. And given the profit margin of the institution, they were all fine with that. If they hadn't spent the $120 million, there's no way they would have sold $1 million worth of tuition. The $120 million had a five times multiple. They spent a dollar, they got $5 back, and they did it as much as they could. And then it all comes crashing down. That happens sometimes. But advertising, direct marketing, easily measured, aimed at low-hanging fruit that hasn't been exploited yet, we can show over and over again that that works. The same way that Pottery Barn makes money 
sending out catalogs, even though they know most of the people don't open the catalog or buy from them. The minute that spending money on catalogs stops paying, they will stop sending out catalogs. So what we're seeing are many, many markets all intertwined. There is the market of the 60s, 70s, and 80s in which TV advertising was way underpriced. And if you could buy a bunch of ads, it was almost certain to work better than if you didn't buy ads. If we look at the early days of the internet, for certain sinecures, it worked great, but most of the time, it didn't. It was simply a signal. If we look at the auctions that Google and others run, if a lot of people are bidding in the auction, it is almost certain you're going to pay too much. The fact is that if you are trying for a category on Facebook that other people are trying also to run ads on, it's Facebook's job to make sure you don't make any money doing that because what they want is a full auction audience. They want as many bidders as possible, and if some drop out, that's okay because there are more, and they want to take all the money off the table. So perhaps the best news in an online internet auction is that you come in second because it means your competitor overpaid for something, and now you have the revenue to spend on serving customers instead. So I'm ranting in lots of directions here because I'm not defending advertising per se. I'm saying we need to ask the right question. And the question is, for this audience, given the media that is available to me, is there a way to reach them with impact, with frequency, so that over time they come to believe that my brand is worth something? Either because I get someone who's not in the category to enter the category, or more likely, I get someone in the category to pay extra for my brand. Because if people aren't paying extra, you don't have a brand. It's the extra that pays for all of the things you put on top of the generic item. Now, in the podcast, Dubner puts in an aside about generic items, because in fact, in most cases, certainly in a double-blind study, they work just as well as branded ones. However, we're not double-blind. However, we care about the brands. We tell ourselves a story. And if we think that story is worth it, we're happily paying it. Where does the story come from? It comes from ads. It comes from websites. It comes from YouTube videos. It comes from the way a company expresses itself about what it does and why it does it. And once we know the story, we tell the story to our peers, we tell the story to our friends, because telling the story by wearing the logo, by showing what kind of car we have as we drive down the street, we can't help it, makes us feel better. That's part of the reason we paid extra. Earlier in this episode, which I recorded long before I got your question, I talked about Gleam and Jay Levinson. What I left out from that riff is simple. The reason that the Gleam story is so hard to tell these days without using the ad on the podcast is that people don't remember Gleam. And the reason that people don't remember Gleam is that they stopped advertising. So brush often, even if you can't brush after every meal. So I can make eight or ten podcasts about this. Here's just what I'll say. I don't think advertising is going away anytime soon. And I know advertising doesn't need any defenders. I would rather spend a lot of time talking about what's wrong with advertising. But one thing is clear. There are business reasons to keep your advertising going 
so you don't fade away. And there are business reasons to do measured direct marketing because you can show it works. And there are business reasons for challenger brands to run ads to go after brands that are too lazy or too cheap to talk to new audiences in new ways. Thanks for listening. We'll see you all next time. What's this stuff? Some cereal. It's supposed to be good for you. I'm not going to try it. Let's get Mikey. Yeah. He won't need it. He hates everything. He likes it. Hey, Mikey. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know? And none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like, we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.